Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Our guest today is Kaya of Mechanic Shop Femme. Kaya was described by the New York Times as a style influencer, writer, and automotive educator. She is the founder of empowerment-based education platform, Mechanic Shop Femme, which provides comprehensive automotive education for the average consumer. Kaya also writes about plus-size fashion and issues surrounding the queer community. She's also an LGBTQ and body-positive advocate and has been featured in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, Oprah, and was one of the advocates, Women of the Year for 2020. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Kaya. We're so happy to have you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for welcoming me on. Well, I've been following you on social media for a while, and you've really been up to a lot. You've got your platform, Mechanic Shop Femme, which is, I believe, your main focus. But I also see you all over the news. Your wedding was in the New York Times. You had a, I correct me here, I think a food post that went totally viral. <laughs> How do you get all of this press? Do you have a, an amazing PR person or are you doing this yourself? I do 99% of my own PR. I get press really just by being me most of the time, but I also have strategies for reaching out to journalists and influencers. And part of that is just being being relatable, but also being reliable. If you're not reliable and if you don't respond to people in a reasonable time frame, they're not going to hang out and wait for you. That is so true. As a journalist, lots of things interest me. So I do pick a couple subjects that I try to focus on. But other things interest me too. I'm a multidimensional person and a multi-passionate entrepreneur. So I go where where people want me to be. You jump on opportunity, right? You don't let it go. You don't let it just pass you by. <laughs> exactly. Well, I would love to hear a little bit about, before we really get into your background and everything, I just want to hear a little bit about Mechanic Shop Femme, what it's all about, what you do, what your purpose is, and what you've been able to accomplish with it. So I started Mechanic Shop Femme really sort of a little bit on the fly. I decided I was going to try to blog about cars because I really enjoyed explaining to my customers what was happening with their cars as I was working in the industry. And so I started and I wrote a blog post and people were really interested. So I wrote another one. After writing about maybe five to 10 blog posts, I was like, okay, so where is this going to go? I mean, it's nice to write, but what else? So I posted in a Facebook group and I asked folks, hey, what would you see me doing? Like, what would you be interested in learning from me? And they immediately told me I had to do classes. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll try that. Let me teach a class. And the next time I shared my blog post, in a little note at the bottom of the post, I wrote, I'm thinking about teaching a class on how to buy a used car. If you're interested, send me a message. And I was, I think I was full in like 48 to 72 hours. Like I went from just having this idea to having a class and we're almost four years later now. 
So I write about cars, both for my own side and also for places like AAA. Um, I just got an assignment in Real Simple Magazine to talk about used cars. And I write for my own site, obviously. But I also do all kinds of other things. So I want to meet people where they're at. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I try to do these podcasts once in a while. (laughs) I'm not on YouTube. My goal and my simple, very straightforward mission is to teach regular drivers about their car. I'm not here to subscribe to car bro culture or to teach people how to fix their own vehicles. I'm here to help people just be more educated car owners because they're going to be safer and they're going to save money in the long run. That is so interesting. So how did you, what was your foray, I guess, into cars? Did you start out knowing that this is what you wanted to do and and you just pursued it or did you kind of get thrust into it? How did it start? It's a funny story. I was 18 years old and I was aging out of the foster care system and I was desperately seeking a job And I didn't quite know where I was going to fit, but I was applying to all the retail jobs you apply to when you're 18 and fast food and so forth, and nothing was working. So I started a GoFundMe and someone reached out to me via the GoFundMe and they helped connect me with an HR manager at Sears. And when I went in for the interview, she said, well, Kaya, what department do you want to work in? Mm -hmm. And I was like, no idea. Like I'd never really imagined myself to be working in retail as like a career. So I just told her very simply, whatever department makes the most money, you know, very (laughs) Capricorn like. Uh, And she's like, well, the appliances are cars, you know, the auto center. And I was like, well, the auto center sounds like a challenge. And she's like, do you have your driver's license? And I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I went and got my driver's license. And eventually I started at Sears Auto Center And very quickly it clicked. I mean, there was a while that I was having nightmares about the wrong tires going on the wrong cars and giving the wrong information. But quite quickly, it clicked in a way that was interesting to me. And I started envisioning a career in this field. Later on, a few years into my career is when I started Mechanic Shop Femme in June of 2017. And I continued to work full-time in the auto industry until April of last year when I took my business full-time. Got it. So you went to Sears. You started out at Sears after aging out of the foster care system. And that's kind of how you started getting your feet wet in automotive. So I read that you grew up in a very religious home with many siblings. Is that true? Like 14 or something? Yeah. So I'm 26. I grew up if you're reading the press, it, you know, as the years go on, they don't update the articles. Imagine, imagine that. <laughs> I grew up as the oldest of 15 children in a Hasidic Jewish home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So you were really working for about five years in automotive repair before you started, decided to start your own business? I think that's about right. So I went into the automotive industry when I was 18, and then I started my own business in June of 2017. So I think that's five years, somewhere around there. And I started Mechanic Shop Femme really as this blog. So soon after I started my blog, I started my Instagram. And I had already had a collection of photos because I had modeled for photographers that were looking for someone to practice on. So I started my Instagram and I focused a lot more on fashion there and cars on my blog. And people were like, oh, that's not going to work. You're going to have to pick one. You're going to have to find a way to niche down and pick one thing and do it. And I wouldn't have it. I mean, I'm a colorful, aggressive 
person and a big personality. And I felt like it wasn't worth it. If I couldn't bring my full self to my work, then I shouldn't continue the work and I should just continue in my career in the automotive industry. So I powered through and I didn't listen to the naysayers. And then it all ended up working out. You know, I wanted to make sure that the people who resonated with my story and with who I was as a person would find me. And eventually they did. It took a little while, but eventually it, they did. And now who I am just complements and uplifts the work that I do. Hi, why is it that your audience, the community that you formed and your audience, why is it that they need this help with automobiles? Is it just because everyone sort of needs that help and this is just a way of speaking to them? Or is it that they have been not addressed properly within the more mainstream automotive community? What is that reason there? Well, Emily, let me ask you a question about your car. Sure. <laughs> I don't have a car. <laughs> Do you, Are you a driver though? Do you yes, know how I to drive? drive? Yes. Have you ever had a car? Yes. Okay. So do you know how often oil should be changed on a car? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, one every six months? See, the answer is it depends. Oh, okay. <laughs> it depends on the car. But this is why my message resonates. Exactly this. Nobody has enough education when it comes to cars. Right. Not men, not women, not queer people. Nobody has enough education when it comes to cars. The education was held in this in this very niche car culture community that blocked out everybody that wasn't like them. Yeah. And dads who were supposed to have the information often didn't. Mm -hmm. And if they did, they didn't have the accurate information and they passed on information to their children and cars evolved and the education didn't. And you know, somebody commented on one of my TikToks recently and they, this was a young person under 18 and they said, you're actually teaching me something I do know. My parents are too busy trying to explain to me why being gay is wrong. Mm. So, so it's a bit of a distraction. Like they're not getting they're not getting the education they need because there's too much distraction from other aspects of their lives from their parents. This is a life skill. Just like people don't learn mm -hmm. how to how to do their taxes and they don't learn how to balance their bank accounts and they don't learn how to work financially. I mean, our generation and the generation above and below me are really poor financial planners, aren't very good at figuring out interest rates and financing vehicles and all of that. So what I do really falls under this category of like adulting and adult responsibility and just being a better vehicle owner and driver, most people think, okay, I'll buy a car. I'll take it to the mechanic once in a while and I'll change out the car when I'm done with it, which is definitely one way to do it. But for the vast majority of Americans, we don't have a thousand dollars sitting in the bank account to deal with an unexpected car repair. If you become a more educated car owner, you actually help take care of your car to minimize those expenses, but not just minimize them to budget for them. Mm -hmm. If you just wait until your car brakes start grinding, you've doubled the cost of a repair that you could have cost, caught earlier and only replaced your brake pads. And if you're going to go in for service regularly and you know what to look for and you know how to find that mechanic that you're going to trust, you're going to be in a much better position. And then, you know, you add in the layers of the mansplaining in the shop and you add in the homophobia and sexism of repair shops and put all of those things together and you get people who are truly terrified of going into the mechanic. 
Mm-hmm. They think every time that they step foot into that door, somebody is trying to scam them. When in reality, they're not. Mechanics generally are not out to get people's money. In fact, building a relationship with someone is ultimately going to pay them back many times over, as opposed to trying to get $100 out of your pocket. But this, the mansplaining and the sexism and all of these layers and the lack of proper communication from the mechanic and the lack lack of proper education from the point of consumer becomes this position where people are just so scared of each other and nothing works out. I try to mediate that. I'm a translator. I help people understand what their car needs maintenance-wise, what their car needs ownership-wise, how to buy a car, what are the different elements of car insurance, things that they would usually ask their dad or their mechanic or somebody in their life, and that person doesn't have the answers or the correct answers, which is even more important. You mentioned something about car culture. What is car culture, and how does it play into your work? I think there's the respectful car culture where people are just enthusiasts and they love their vehicles and they enjoy it just like any other collector or anything else. And then there's people who think that they're above everybody else and that act as gatekeepers and that think that some people aren't deserving of information and constantly talk down and demean the people that are around them that aren't part of their in circle. So this plays out in one specific way is, let's say I create a TikTok video. I did one about premium fuel. I shared what AAA says about premium fuel, which is if premium fuel is not recommended or required for your vehicle, it is provides very little benefit to the consumer. In fact, so little benefit that people are spending somewhere like $4.3 million a year on premium fuel that they don't need. Oh my gosh. So I shared this statistic on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And I got like 500 comments from so-called car bro culture people who went after me about how their cars take premium fuel. Well, I wasn't talking about their cars. I wasn't talking about any cars that recommend or require premium fuel. I also wasn't saying that you can't put premium fuel in your car. All I was saying is you don't have to waste your money on this if it's not recommended or required, but the nuance is lost. They're so busy looking at me as a fat, queer, proud woman, and they don't hear what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That is car bro culture. Okay. Car bro culture. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> I need to spend more time on TikTok, I think. <laughs> oh man, I've learned. So, you know, it's the first time that I've truly enjoyed a social media platform. I mean, I have 23,000 followers on Instagram and I've been on all the, the social media networks, but I always looked at them as like a business mm-hmm. and less as something that I personally enjoyed in my time off. Like I wouldn't sit on the couch and scroll through Instagram and look at what people were posting in my free time, but I will scroll through TikTok and I will learn things from people of all different backgrounds and all different cultures and all different identities, which is really powerful, I think. Well, I want to get back to that in a few minutes because I I know that you just hit a milestone on there. Before we do that, I wanted to ask you about DIY. You mentioned on your website DIY and how you don't teach it. Can you explain what is DIY and why don't you teach it? So DIY is with cars is people who want to fix their own cars themselves. And there is a place for that. There are people who are 
very talented at teaching others how to fix their own vehicles. However, that's not my platform. I am here for the average consumer that really has no interest in climbing under their car and fixing it themselves, but they have an interest in taking better care of their car. And there's a couple reasons why I took the route that I did. First of all, there aren't very many people like me. I don't really know of anyone like me who intentionally educates car owners and drivers without teaching them how to fix their own cars. So that's one thing. Second thing, cars are evolving every single day. And every car is different from the next car. Even different years are different. So while some things remain the same, in order to authentically be able to teach something to someone in a way that is actually going to be helpful for them in the long run, it's very hard to do this on a broad level. You have to do it on a very specific level. Here's how you fix this on this specific car and over and over and over again. So that's one thing. And second of all, as somebody who spent seven years in the auto repair industry, you know, managing shops and working in shops, I found that so many people mess up their cars when they try to fix them themselves. Mm. So many people and unintentionally, and they end up causing way more damage. And part of that is that there's just not super great information about the specific problems. So you could show somebody how to do something when it works, but what about the times that it doesn't work? Uh, That's kind of my thing. I'm not, there's a place for DIY and there's a lot of people who do really well at it. I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. I'm here for people who want to be smarter, safer car drivers and protect their investment. I mean, if you are someone who doesn't own a house, your car is usually your largest investment. If you own a house, it's probably your second largest investment. You're spending a lot of money on this machine that you also are spending like seven 40 hour a week, 40 hour weeks in per year per a recent report, like two years ago. So you're spending seven weeks, seven work weeks in your vehicle. Wow. That's a lot of time to spend in your car. That's a lot. And most people don't think twice about it. They take it into their mechanic twice a year. They do one, two service. And then they say, oh, you're probably trying to scam me. So I'm not doing anything else. That's so interesting about what what you said about they're not likely trying to scam you, but they want the relationship. And the way for them to make money is to build that over time and keep your business coming back, not to rip you off one time. Exactly. And are there people that are going to rip people off? Absolutely. There are those people in every industry. But as a general rule, if you're going to a privately owned shop, an independent mechanic, they're a small business. Just like every other, just like my small business. Our goal is to serve our customers. Can there be a breakdown in communication? Absolutely. And in shops, this becomes exacerbated. The customers don't understand their vehicles and they come in with the attitude that somebody's trying to take their money. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to give them the proper advice. And then you have the shop owner that knows you're coming in with this attitude. And they also know that this is what's going on with the vehicle, but they are good with their hands and not always good with their words. And sometimes they can't translate what's happening with your car into language that you can understand. And that breakdown in communication is why I think a lot of people are scared of repair shops. And I want to fix that. Yeah. Now, speaking of. making money from these businesses with your business, you charge on a sliding scale. Do you do that to make it more accessible to other people? Why do you do that? Yeah. So it's very important to me that my work be as accessible as possible, but also 
be something that can keep me financially secure. I think that I spent a lot of time and I invested a lot of effort and I deserve to receive a paycheck for that work. And by creating a sliding scale, I'm both able to serve people on the lower end of the income scale. And I'm able to ask people at the higher end of this income scale to have help subsidize that work. Mm-hmm. And everybody benefits this way. I also provide free spots to low-income people of color and low-income people with disabilities. And I also provide tons of free content. So the sliding scale services that I have are the smallest part of my general customer-facing business. I have tons of educational content on Instagram, on TikTok, on my blog that is totally free to access. That doesn't cost you a single penny. And I feel like that that really plays into your talent and passion for building community, whether online or in person. You've you've built this huge community online. And I've read about how you've also built so much community in person, how and even how food plays a role because you are known for cooking and sharing that food with others in your community. Do you think all of this is related? I believe in community. I believe community is one of the strongest things that one can build. And I really believe in people supporting each other. And I think all of these things tie in together for sure. The way that I offer the services that I offer, the way that I that I serve my community in many other ways that I don't talk about, they're all important to me. Yeah. And what has been the overall reception? I mean, you mentioned that you've gotten some, maybe some backlash on TikTok from the bro culture. <laughs> We had, I, we, we I don't, the bro care. Culture. I don't yeah. care about that. Yeah, I was going to say, with the bro culture attacks in from many different fields, <laughs> but I guess they're in cars too. You, so with dealing with trolls, you just don't worry about it. <laughs> I've been working on an article called The Fat Woman's Guide to Dealing with Trolls. Oh. <laughs> uh, dealing with trolls is an art. It's a science and an art. You know, you have to engage enough to you know, because your followers will engage with them. So you have to engage enough to shut it down. And it, I mean, it's part of social media. That's just how it goes, but you can't take it personally. Like you have to take a step back and remember that first of all, these people are not your people. They're not your community. They're not your audience and look at it from a business mindset and not from a personal mindset. As soon as you put your personal self in it, man, it hurts. (laughs) But if you step back and you look at it through a business brain, you look, okay, well, these people are commenting on my content and that is helping my content do better. And that's going to help more people see it. Now, let me figure out a way to address this that will both show my followers that I am, I'm credible and reestablish my expertise and shut these people down because it's not their place. It's I'm not for them. I'm not. I always say, you know, I'm here for the queers and fatties and women are welcome as long as they respect the space I'm creating. And there are plenty of men that follow me and plenty of men that take my classes. But those men understand the space that I've created and they respect the space that I've created and they respect my expertise, which is important, too, because if they come in and start challenging me, we have a problem. Well, speaking of this space, it's not a small space. You just hit a milestone on TikTok, which we said we would get back to. So I do want to talk about that. How many followers do you have now? 
on TikTok, I, have, I think I have 104,000. And by the time this will air, it will probably be more because I've grown from 12,000 to 100,000 in like two weeks. You're kidding. Two weeks? <laughs> yes. What was the post that sent that going? I just told people what I what I was there for. Yeah. I, I basically I said, hi, here's who I am. Wait a second, don't leave this post. Please interact with this post because I'm gonna help you be a better car owner and I'm gonna help you save money. And that was it. And people were like, oh shit. And and I talked about excuse me, I don't know if I'm allowed to That's fine. <laughs> Part of what I said is like, hey, listen, I know you're tired of mansplaining in the repair shop. I also know that everybody here on this platform asks you to engage with their content and you're probably tired of it, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway, because I'm bringing something really important to the table and here's how I'm going to help you. I've also had videos with, you know, how to put windshield wiper fluid in, in your car with 125,000 views, which people will discount immediately. People will be like, nobody needs to know how to put windshield wiper fluid in their car. Everybody knows how to do that. Well, let me tell you, hundred. <laughs> 5,000 people watched this video and they <laughs> watched this video because they knew how to put windshield wiper fluid in their car. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is quite a milestone. So congrats on that. And we'll have to keep following and see how that grows. That'll be interesting. I'm sure it's going to keep Thank going. You. And speaking of congrats, I want to congratulate you on your marriage. Thank and you very much. I don't think it would be a good idea for me to end this interview without asking you about your wedding because it made the New York Times. Can you tell us about that? Oh, my wedding kind of exploded. It's sort of like TikTok. <laughs> you know, I, I think when people ask me about things that I do and they're like, oh, look, you know, it just went from zero to hundred so fast. Well, no, it would took three, almost four years of working and yeah. building and creating so that one day the switch flips and you go from zero to 100. And the same thing with my wedding. I've been sharing my wife and my love story and things like that on my platforms almost since we met. And my wife, our relationship grew with my business. We've been together for almost five years. And I think I started our, my business maybe less than a year after we met. So we really grew together. And sharing my wedding just made sense. So when I shared it, you know, I was expecting a response. I mean, people needed a break from everything that was happening in the world. But I wasn't expecting 10,000 people to watch virtually. And I think it was in over 10 publications. It was it was in the New York Times, but it was also in Go Magazine. And it was also in The Forward, which is a Jewish publication. The Curvy Fashionista, Alma, another Jewish publication. It was in two different or three different publications in England. In fact, we made the top queer moments of the year in the U.S. and in England and one of the top Jewish moments of the year. It was like, it's still coming. And we were just named one of the most captivating couples of the year by Go Magazine just a few days ago. Well, if, if any of our listeners haven't heard about this wedding, please go check it out online. It's so interesting. They were, I, I read that you were planning on just a regular you know, wedding and you wanted to have a lot of people there, but it ended up you know, with the pandemic. So you decided to change it to virtual. And one of your vows was... Today is our ultimate compromise, a wedding with no one, yet with everyone present. Yeah, we went back and forth for a while about whether, you know, my wife wanted a very small wedding and I wanted a large wedding. And by very small, she wanted like to go to Vegas and elope. I wanted like 50 people at the wedding, a big, beautiful backyard and a 
pig roast and a huge cheese board. And we sort of waffled back and forth. And then the pandemic came and all of a sudden things changed. And we settled on this and it worked perfectly. It was beautiful. Probably the best story of it, if you didn't read it in the New York Times, is to read it in the Huffington Post. I wrote that myself. There's an essay about like how my views on what my wedding was going to be evolved from being from a child, like how it was mm-hmm. going to be as an ascetic child, and then eventually growing up. And it's really a nice like evolution piece because people don't think about what they thought their wedding was going to be like as a child and then how it's evolved over the years and what's influenced the way that they thought their wedding was going to be. And I imagine that as the future comes and the pandemic is over, that people's weddings are not going to look the same as they looked before either. So do you, you mean you think they're going to continue to be at least partially virtual? I think that they're going to rethink the way that they look at weddings in general, just like we're rethinking the way that we look at working and whether we work from home or work from the job, mm-hmm. that it's just going to look different. And perhaps a virtual component will be present. And perhaps it means just having a very small wedding instead of spending a mortgage down payment on a wedding. Interesting. Well, you called it the biggest, queerest wedding of the year, and it sure was. It sure was. Very cool. Well, Kaya, where can our listeners find you? Where can they find Mechanic Shop Femme? And where's the best place for them to get in touch with you? So I'm under on my handles on every platform except for except for Twitter are at Mechanic Shop Femme. So TikTok, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, Mechanic Shop Femme. On Twitter, it's at Mechanic Femme. And if Twitter's listening, please extend how many characters your handle could be. That's the only reason why it's not a full handle. But there it is. So Mechanic Femme on Twitter, Mechanic Shop Femme everywhere else. And of course, you can find me on my website where there's easily clickable links, which is MechanicShopFemme.com, F-E-M-M-E. Got it. Kaya, thank you for sharing your journey with us today. What I love about you and why why you're a total hazard girl is yes, you work in this male dominated field of the automotive industry, but you're paving your own way totally unapologetically. You're all about not just being yourself, but also helping carve out a place so that others can be themselves as well. Thank you. I tried my best. Thanks so much for joining us. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.